Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So we've spent 20-some weeks studying the teaching of Jesus from Matthew 5, 6, and now into chapter 7. Uh, but there's a time later on in Matthew's gospel where some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day come to him and they ask him some questions, trying to test him and trip him up. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, uh, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, love God and love people. This is in, in some way summation, a summary of the Old Testament. It's very relational when you think about it like that. See, God is relational, and because we are all created in the image of God, in fact, to image God to the world, we too are relational beings, uh, and the essence of what Jesus is saying here reminds us that there are particular ways that we need to relate to God, and there are particular ways that we need to relate to one another, to people, to the world around us. And that's what this section of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be getting at. As Christians, there is nothing in our Christianity that is not relational. Just think about that for one second. There is nothing in Christianity, there is nothing in our faith that is not relational. We're either relating to God, or we're relating to his people, or we're relating to the world around us. There's no part of our lives that are really remains untouched by the relationality of our faith. So as we look through Matthew 7 verses 1 through 12 today, we see that verses 1 through 5 are dealing with how we relate to God's people even in the midst of a little bit of conflict. We're going to see in verse 6 how we are to relate to people who don't want to hear the good news of Jesus. In verses 7 to 11, we're going to deal with how we relate to God as our Father, particularly in prayer. And then in verse 12, it's going to tell us how we can relate to the whole world around us. That's our outline, a four-point outline how we relate to the church as our family, how we relate to those who reject Jesus, how we relate to God as our Father, and how we relate to the world with love. How we relate to the church, how we relate to those who want nothing to do with Jesus, 
how we relate to God as our Father, and how we relate to the world with love. So first, let's look at how we relate to church as our family. Let's start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's one of the more well-known verses of Scripture to people who do not follow Jesus and do not engage in any other verses of Scripture almost ever in their lives. And we know this because when we're having conversations around perhaps moral Christian principles of some kind or the expectations of how we should best live to flourish as human beings, somebody will look at us and say, judge not, lest you be judged. It's a verse that gets thrown toward us um, at probably maybe frequent Uh, uh, occurrences for some of you and maybe infrequent for others, um, but in a way that is meant to silence us. And usually in that same line of reasoning or that same argumentation, the next thing that comes out is only God can judge me. Only God can judge me, which is only partially true and is definitely not good news in the way that people tend to use it. Um, If you grew up in the 90s like me, you know that that comes from a Tupac song, not from the Bible. Uh, But what is Jesus actually getting at here in Matthew chapter 7? He he is under no false pretense that his people are perfect. He's talking about that. You're going to be adjusting specs and and maybe doing so with a log beaming out of your eye. That's something he's saying. He's not any expectation of perfection here. See, part of what he's getting at is generally, I think, we are quite gentle with our own view of our own sins. And at times, we can be generally, I think, at times, quite harsh with our view of the sins of others. What he's really getting at, though, is knowing who we are and who we are not. Let me show you what um, the letter of James says about this, which I think is basically commenting on the Sermon on the Mount. James chapter 4, verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge? Your neighbor. There's only one judge, and you are not him. That's what James is saying. See, when Jesus says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7, when he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When he says that, I think he's saying, God is God, and you are not, and you need to stay in your lane. At the same time, though, it's not as simple as what Tupac said. It's not as simple as only God can judge me, so you can't just do away with any other relationality with respect to the way that we follow Jesus and move on as though there's no relational discernment or accountability within the context of the Christian church. See, how we relate to one another as the church, as family, it matters. Jesus is saying as you address sin and issues within your relationships, within the context of the family of God, the church of Jesus, he's saying make sure that you remember you are not standing over and above some sort of perfect judge, standing beyond your brothers and sisters in the faith. 
What he's saying is make sure you understand that you stand alongside them as a fellow forgiven sinner who will be judged as well. John Stott said, not only are we not the judge, but we are among the judged and shall be judged with the greater strictness ourselves if we dare to judge others. Okay? But still, Jesus is not saying turn a blind eye to sin and have a deaf ear toward injustices that you see going on around you. He's not saying that. He's saying be gracious and discerning as you seek to come alongside your brothers and sisters and remember that you do not have it all together yourself. On the passage that I quoted from James chapter 4, Uh, In their commentary on James, Miriam Kovalishin and Craig Blomberg say, James is not calling believers never to judge in the sense of not analyzing others' behavior and beliefs, nor even in the sense of refusing to take corrective action, but rather not to be characterized by a judgmental or censorious spirit. See, the issue here is not addressing the behavior of our church family. That's not the issue. That's happening all the time. It's actually good and a part of good faithful discipleship in Christ. Being challenged and sharpened and refined and rebuked, all of those things are good, godly things. We need to actually welcome those. One of the ways that you can grow in wisdom in your life is to be the kind of person who is rebukable. That's a good thing. You want people to speak into your life. That's not what's at issue here. Like if if you've been in quarantine for the last 10 weeks or lockdown or whatever this is called for the last 10 weeks and nobody has had to challenge you in your Christ-likeness, nobody has had to challenge you in the way that you're living, then, then you are perhaps someone who is walking on the water and has the right to come and adjust the speck in somebody else's eye. I, I, I don't think that's happening for a lot of us. I think a lot of us are in close proximity, a lot of us are out of regular rhythms, and a lot of us are having to be reminded what it means to serve Jesus and how to love one another well. See, the issue is not speaking into somebody's life. The issue is the posture with which you do it. Jesus said, verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, he's not saying don't ever go and adjust the speck in your brother's eye, but make sure that you know darn well that you have a log protruding from yours that you need to deal with perhaps first. He's not saying ignore the issues in somebody's life. That isn't actually loving, to just ignore issues in others' others' lives. We're called to a higher standard of love than that. Overlooking issues in people's lives is is not loving. It's actually destructive. Allowing people to continue toward the pathway that leads to destruction, that's actually really unkind. We want to step in and speak into each other's lives, but the way that we do it matters. He's just saying, basically, remember that you've got your own problems too. He's saying, don't be a hypocritical jerk as you approach problems in the life of another person as though you walk on water. John Wesley, the great pastor and hymnist said the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. The judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. See, the issue is not judging. The issue is judgmentalism that elevates self and diminishes the other because you're acting without love. 
This is where God's grace just needs to flood our lives and the grace that we've received and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. It needs to be applied as just an overflowing effect of our love that we have in us. The love of Christ in us overflows into the life of another and then the iron sharpening iron interrelatedness of the family of God is not something that we can look down on but that's actually one of the great keys and features of how we grow together in our maturity and holiness. But apart from an encounter with a kind and gentle and gracious Jesus, none of us, none of us, have the ability to love another. There's room for growth in Christ-likeness in being challenged for one another. There's room for that in the church. There's just no room for personal condemnation in the family of God. That's first from verses 1 to 5, how we relate to church as our family. But what about the stubborn folks who just do not want to hear about Jesus? How do we relate, very quickly, verse 6, how do we relate to those who reject Jesus? Well, just when you think Jesus is getting maybe a little soft, telling people to be nice to each other, he drops this absolute gem of a statement into the mix. Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. All right. Jesus is preaching anti-judgmentalism in the family of faith, but he is not preaching anti-discernment. I think that's important. In uh, Frederick Dale Bruner's book on the Gospel of Matthew, he titles the section dealing with verses 1 to 5, um, he titles it, Don't Be So Critical. And then in the section on verse 6, he titles it, But Be a Little Critical. Uh, Don't be so critical, but be a little critical. And I think he's right. Uh, Jesus turns from talking about the interrelated family of God conversation, the brothers and sisters in faith conversation, to now look at those who do not yet know him. And, And I think his point is that when you share the hope you have with people who don't want to receive it, who are actually hostile to the message that you're sharing with them, there will come a time in your efforts, there will, there will come a, a time in the efforts you're making to unveil the love of Jesus to them, where, where you are trying to unveil the holiness and the preciousness of the gospel to these people, there will come a time when that needs to stop. And, and, and you need to just pull back from that because all they're going to do is take it and attack you with it. And you need to be wise about how that looks. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on, gospel, uh, on the Gospel of Matthew, he summarizes it well when he said, what Jesus has in mind here is not fear about speaking, but profound respect for the gloriousness of the gospel, a desire to honor God, and an approach to gospeling that does the most service to Christ. In other words, we need to ask if speaking up in a given situation will honor or vilify Christ, and then to act accordingly. What this text teaches us is that we have to learn when to speak and when to walk away. And sometimes walking away is the most gospel-honoring thing we can do. So first, we see in this passage here in Matthew chapter 7 how we relate to uh, church as family. Secondly, we see how to relate with those who uh, relate to those who reject Jesus or are hostile to the message of the gospel. And then third, we need to see how we relate to God as our Father. Verse 7 in Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is a reasonably well-known passage on prayer in the whole Bible. It's the ask, seek, knock. It's the A-S-K. That spells ask, and people really like it when you can memorize something like it uh, in that way. I'm not really that preacher, but I, do, I, I just need to highlight that. That's all I've got for you. Ask, seek, knock. In Matthew 6, we've got Jesus teaching us um, what's called the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of a set prayer. Uh, but here in Matthew 7, we've got a bit more of what I want to call a free prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, we've got this set prayer of our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here. But in Matthew 7, we've actually got this ask, seek, knock. Just pursue God, bring your requests to him because he is a good and loving Father who wants to answer. There's a, a, a good thing to, to see that there's a set prayer and a free prayer. And actually, both of them are very needed and important in your prayer life, but I don't want you to miss the point. Don't miss the point. This is not about you getting from God what you want or getting from God what you think you need by using some sort of formula. Okay, prayer is not about getting what you want from God. Prayer is about getting God. This passage reveals something to us about who he is. That's the point. I think ask and seek and knock are, are here given to us with increasing urgency. Just think of it like this. If, if one of my girls, if we're all home, which we've been all home a lot, if we're all home and, and, and one of them, maybe they're in the living room or in, in their bedroom and, and they, they're in their bedroom and they decide that they need to ask me something. And they come out and they go, well, well, if I'm in the same room, they can just ask. There's something close about that. They don't have to do much pursuit. They can just ask. If at the same time they're in a different room and they are not with me and they want to ask me something, they're probably going to need to seek me out. And they'll come out into the rest of the house and they'll meander around and try to find me. Well, if they come out from the room because I'm not with them and they come out into the rest of the house and they can't find me and what they find is that the bedroom door is closed and I'm behind the bedroom door, they know that they're invited to knock because it would be my joy to help them with whatever they need. Jesus says, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you see the progressive pursuit that's in this? Ask and seek and knock. I think it's the idea of pursuit, maybe, maybe being formed a little bit in the, the way that we can move toward God in prayer. Again, prayer is not getting what you want from God. Prayer is getting a hold of God himself. And the correlation that he's making is if you, me, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, give good things to those who ask him? If we ask God, he answers, he gives. If we seek God, we're promised that we'll find him. If we knock, he will open up to us. Not because we're amazing at prayer, not because we hit the right formula, not because we had the right posture, but because he is an amazingly generous and loving Father who welcomes us to come and pray. And sometimes when we're in this kind of text, looking at a passage on prayer like this, we may think that there's some sort of automated response that's supposed to come from our Father in heaven when we ask or seek or knock. But sometimes we don't know what his answers are going to be in terms of what he gives and how he allows us to find and what he opens up before us. 
And sometimes we don't know when the answers are going to come. But again, I want to say that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that he reveals himself to us as our loving father. Jesus points to him as our father. He gives good gifts. See, I don't pray just because I need something from God. I pray because I need God. I don't pray just because I want something from God. I pray because I want God. And let me just unburden you for a second in your devotional prayer life. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy the discipline of prayer. I don't particularly enjoy the discipline of prayer, but I, I pursue the presence of God in my prayer life. And those are two different things. See, the discipline of prayer is what is going to sustain you in, in low moments and dark moments and when you're walking in the middle of the night and aren't sure where you're going. Those, those disciplines sustain you in your relationship with God your Father. But I don't love the discipline of prayer. I just love my relationship with him. If you reframe ask and seek and knock and your ask, seek, knock life of prayer within that new framework, I'm just telling you it's much more enjoyable. It becomes not something you have to do to be a good Christian, but it becomes something you get to do because you're pursuing a relationship with God. And so just unburden yourself from sometimes feeling like garbage when you go to pray, like he's probably not hearing you, like he's distant. Just so you know, that's normal. We all experience that. I don't primarily ask, seek, and knock because I know that God is the source of all the stuff that I need to do all the things that I need to do. I ask and seek and knock in my prayer life because I have a father who gives good gifts to his children and because of his deep and generous love to me, I know that if the answer does not materialize in the way that I think it should, this text is clearly telling me that the answer is not because he isn't good or generous. If that's why things don't materialize the way that I think they should, the answer is not that he is not good and generous and loving gracious it's because i don't know what he knows and even in those circumstances i can still anchor my trust in him this is how we relate to god as our father earlier on i said apart from an encounter with a kind and gentle and gracious jesus where the motivations of our heart are reordered none of us have the ability to love each other but apart from an encounter with a kind and generous and gracious Jesus where the motivations of our heart are reordered, I don't think any of us has the ability to trust God as our Father. What this text is teaching us is that without Jesus, we are prone to judge people and doubt God. What this text is teaching us is that without Jesus, we are prone to judge people and to doubt God, but with Jesus, we can now freely love people and trust him. It's transformative. It changes everything. When you see what the work of Christ does in our life, it changes the relatedness we have with people and God. An encounter with the real Jesus reorients all of our relationality on both the horizontal and the vertical plane, if I can say it that way. It changes the way we see the world around us and the people around us, and it changes the way we understand our connection and relationship with God. An encounter with Jesus changes the way that we approach all of our relationships, whether they're with Jesus followers or not. And an encounter with Jesus changes the way we approach God because in Jesus we see the fatherly love of God made manifest among us. 
If we want to know how to relate to God as our Father, we need to look at Jesus. And if we want to know how to relate to people, whether they be brothers or sisters in the family of faith or our enemies who have rejected Jesus in that way, we need to look to Jesus. This text shows us how to relate to church as family. This text shows us how to relate to those who reject Jesus. This text shows us how to relate to God as our Father. And this text, fourth and finally, shows us how we relate to the world around us with love. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, I know a few minutes ago when I was in verse 6, some of you saw that, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. And you saw that and you thought that sounds harsh. Sounds unloving. Let me say that I think verse 6 is the exception in the life of a Christian. I think it's the exception. I think verse 12 is the rule. I think verse 6 is the exception. I think verse 12 is the rule. I think verse 6 is extreme. I think verse 12 is to be ordinary around us, among us. What is generally called the golden rule here invites you into a generous and creative love for all people. You can apply it in the home. You can apply it at your school. You can apply it in your work. You can apply it in your life, in the community of the church. There is literally nowhere where this relational impulse does not connect, and there is literally no way a life that is aimed at this as the goal of this generous, creative love emanating from our lives as followers of Jesus, there is no way that it will not have a profound impact on every relationship in your life. The message of the city around us quite often is just do no harm to others. Just, just leave us alone, do no harm to others. The problem with that kind of message is that we all disagree on what harm really looks like in the life of a person. That ethic does not work. That ethic will not change anyone. Just do no harm. On the other hand, the golden rule of Jesus is different. It says whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Christ City, that is an ethic of sacrificial love. And that's transformative. Do no harm to others doesn't change anyone's heart. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's transformative. Because it's a picture of sacrificial love. One is individualistic and selfish and says, I just want to be me. And the other says, I want to do to others how I would have them do to me. And it's based upon a foundation of sacrificial love. And I think we can only do this well when we know what Jesus has done for us. The sacrificial love of Christ transforms us into people who can then love sacrificially. The golden rule is only possible to live because we have a Savior who modeled it all the way to the cross. See, Jesus' love transforms us, and it transforms how we relate to the church as our family. It transforms how we relate to those who've rejected Jesus. It translates how we relate to God as our Father, and it transforms how we relate to the rest of the world around us with that model of sacrificial love. And we've got no better picture of that sacrificial love than what we have contained in our weekly celebration of communion. So if you're gathered together with your house church online, or if you're about to gather together with your house church online, you can prepare the bread and the wine, 
for the celebration of communion. As we celebrate communion, we have this wonderful picture of God's love for us. He loved the world so much that he sent his only son. We have a picture of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ as he laid his life down in our place and for our sin. We take the bread, the body of Jesus that was broken as he died on the cross in our place, and we partake of that along with the cup, the wine that points us to the reality that Jesus' blood was shed and that he died an atoning death. When we look at the body and blood of Jesus, we can be fully persuaded and fully convinced, fully comforted once again, that Jesus has accomplished everything we would ever need to be saved, that what he has done on our behalf is enough. So I want to invite you to prepare to celebrate communion. Do so thoughtfully, do so with repentance, do so in humility, and do so in community. Don't celebrate communion on your own. That's not what communion is in the life of the church. Celebrate it with your house church online. And if you need information on how to join a house church online, please let us know. Info at ChristCityChurch.ca. It would be our joy to connect you. Let me pray. Father, I ask you that as we set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that you would help us and hold us with your faithfulness, that you would help us to live faithfully before others, that you would hold us near, draw us near, open our eyes to the depth of your love to us that we have evidenced in Christ, and pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we seek to live lives that glorify you in every way. We celebrate who you are. We celebrate what you've done. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.